0: Thank you, everybody, for joining Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 232, Twitter Spaces Recap. Happy New Year. We gave you a week off from newsletters, but we're back at it. So I shared a few different tweets in this space if you want to follow along. With the newsletter from January 4th, which is yesterday. Um, quick introductions Mike Schmidt, contributor at Bitcoin Optech, and also the executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin Core developers and other open source work in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Merch.
1: Hi, okay, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs and I do a bunch of education initiatives and uh, uptake work and other Bitcoin core
0: contributions and things like that. And Stack Exchange maestro.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's been a good year for Stack Exchange, but we could always use more people reading and writing and voting on stuff.
0: All right, let's jump into it. first item is a somewhat timely... News item that came out just a little bit before um, the the final draft of the newsletter, which is Bitcoin Knots signing key compromised. So the maintainer of Bitcoin Knots uh, announced that their PGP key was compromised and warned users not to download Bitcoin Knots. Um, and and there's a concern about trust with the PGP key being compromised and. This person recommends that if you downloaded in the last few months, consider shutting that system down for now. That only that signing only affects Bitcoin Knots and and not other implementations. Um, maybe one place to start is merch. What is Bitcoin Knots? Uh, Bitcoin
1: Knots is an alternative release of the Bitcoin core software. I would say with a patch set that. Um, Adds a bit of Luke's personal flavor to the repository. I believe that it has a few more options for the user uh, to make it behaves differently in the peer-to-peer gossip, uh, for example. It's been supporting full RBF for a long time, uh, since that's been a topic for a while. Um, I think there is maybe a few changes to what transactions get propagated early on in Knots. I think it was not not relaying transactions from Satoshi Dice, for example? Um, I think that it has support for tonal Bitcoin if you're in that sort of, into that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it, it, it's a small patch that I think it also has an index for for keeping track of transactions that does not exist in Bitcoin core, which is why, for example, Wasabi was using it for a while. Um, on the other hand, as also seen in the context of this event uh, where the PGP key has been compromised, it is a patch set maintained by a single um, contributor mostly. I, um, I sometimes... I'm not sure how many people look at Knots frequently and look at the the code that's getting merged there, so uh, yeah, that's Knots, I guess.
0: So the, the, I guess the the tangible risk here is that someone who's has access to that PGP key that was used to sign the releases could sign a modified malicious version of Knots with that PGP key, and someone may. Then download that and and check the signature, see that it's valid, and then potentially bad things happen when they run that software, right?
1: Exactly, that's the concern. I think, yeah. Um, I think that uh, I don't think that we have seen indications of that having happened, and. Uh, It would probably also be difficult to replicate all the steps of a release, um, because that probably involves uploading binaries to a certain uh, place, uh, announcing it. So just even replicating all of the steps would would probably alert uh, the maintainer to somebody else doing this, and he would probably warn us. But uh, yes, with the PGP key, compromise somebody else could make a signature of a software release and even people that check whether it has been signed by the proper key would be uh, foiled potentially
0: and speaking of software forks of Bitcoin core our, our next news item this week is about to um, sorry,
1: yeah, go ahead. Sorry, can I jump in? Um, one more thing, maybe in the context of uh, PGP keys being compromised, um, I am personally a big fan of smart cards. Uh, basically, that is the same thing as hardware wallets for PGP keys. And uh, they come in different flavors. One that is well known are YubiKeys. So it is possible to hold your PGP keys on a YubiKey, which means that the signing operation happens on this hardware device. And you can configure your YubiKeys that they will only perform cryptographic operations when you touch them, which means that even if somebody gets access to your system, they cannot produce signatures because they cannot physically touch the hardware device. So if you are uh, signing a lot of things with your GPG key and do not currently possess a Yubi key, maybe consider or different smart card, of course, uh, maybe consider that this is a prompt to uh, think about um, Um, getting a smart card to manage your GPG key. Perhaps also if you do upgrade to that sort of uh, set up uh, to generate a new GPG key because if your uh, key was on a, a hot system for a long time, um, putting that same key on a smart card is, of course, less secure than just generating a new one and starting over.
0: So much, you use a key,
1: Like a handful of them or so.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. And, and, and then do you sign your commits then? Is that is that how you...?
1: I use them to sign my commits. I use them to SSH into systems where I authenticate with my GPG key and since it can only be um, I can only authenticate with this uh, this hardware device or with any of these hardware devices that hold my GPG key. Um, And they're PIN protected. The PIN actually, if you put it in three times incorrectly, it um, removes access from that slot. So they're pretty theft resistant. Even if somebody watches you put in your PIN, they're probably Unless they really saw exactly what you did, it's it's hard to get it right in three tries. So yeah, they're, I mean, obviously, security is, is hard to be absolute or anything. But I think it's a fairly usable device that can improve your
0: security setup. Cool. I think that was uh, an informative uh, tangent. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, we were talking about bitcoin knots which is a software fork of bitcoin core and there were um, in the last month two other software forks of bitcoin core Um, we've talked about bitcoin inquisition previously and we can jump into that briefly here and then there's also peter todd's full rbf peering node which is uh, a separate sort of patch set on top of bitcoin core and just for any Confusion, we're not talking about soft forks of the protocol. We're talking about software forks of the Bitcoin Core code base to change certain features or enable certain things. In the case of Bitcoin Inquisition, um, enabling uh, Sighash, Anyprevout, and OpCTV on SIGNET. And for a full RBF peering node, Peter Todd um, put a patch on top of Bitcoin Core 24.0.1 that sets a service bit when it's communicating with peers over the network. So those are two examples. We we had knots as a third example, which is timely that all these items are in the same um, newsletter. Um, Merch, thoughts about, uh, since we last talked about Bitcoin Inquisition?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that it doesn't activate CTV and uh sighash any prevert for uh D signet but it starts a second signet where software proposals for the Bitcoin mainnet can be evaluated. So signet is basically a testbed if you want to um, experiment with other protocol rules or want to uh, Run your own private network with experimental software. You could use a Signet to uh, run it, and a Signet can be started up by anyone, and it, it's a little more comfortable than than Reg test. To um, to create an actual network with it, you you basically can identify it by I th- I think there's a network ID or so, and then only nodes that actually want to connect to that specific signet will connect with it. But you could could have a fully fleshed uh, signet. So for example, if you have an enterprise setup where you want to give your customers access to a test where they can run their implementations and um, test their their Integration with your system, then you could run your own Signet and uh, maybe have some some traffic on that Signet so that the users see what it would look like on, on their integrations. Uh, and you, you can run that all through a Signet. So this is a Signet, not the Signet. Uh,
0: how, how sure are you of that? Pretty sure. <laughs> okay, I was under the impression that this is running on the default Signet.
1: Uh, really? Um, yeah, I, says- I, I I would be surprised. I I would be surprised that it would activate on the Signet because uh, that would of course. Make all the other users of Signet be exposed to these software transactions that they may or may not interact with, but um, I might be mistaken. I haven't read too much into it. It's been a while since AJ was at our office to explain it. I,
0: I think your your point stands either way, which is yes, there is um, a default Signet, but you can also spin up your 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 own. Uh, Merchant I, I guess disagree on whether Bitcoin Inquisition is running on the default Signet or not. Um, Any experts here, feel free to raise your hand and and holler at us either way. Um, So uh, I
1: saw that Peter Todd joined us and invited him to speak. Because the next point, of course, pertains to his patch set for the full RBF peering node, right?
0: Perfect timing, fashionably late. Peter, I sent you a speaker invite when you're ready. Um, Merch, any comments on uh bitcoin inquisition and the fact that sig hash any and OpC op ctv were the proposals added um
1: i, th- I think that might be uh, very helpful for these two proposals in the sense that uh, both of them have not seen Uh, a lot of experimentation. They've had a very broad theoretic coverage, but people actually playing around more with them and implementing them and testing them out uh, would maybe give the movements a little more zest. So I'm, I'm very happy to see that. They're being made more broadly available. And I know that OPCTV has had its own Signet before, but I don't think it's that much use. So maybe this new run added will uh, get these two proposals more attention. I think I did see also that um, the author of OPCTV closed his pull request to Bitcoin Core about that. So I'm not sure if that is currently actively pursued anymore. But I, personally, am a big fan of SigHash any product, and I hope that it gets merged sometime soon.
0: So if you're somebody who likes tinkering around with new technology, or you're a company that um, may benefit from some of this technology, it it may be worth it for you to read this mailing list post, but also um, try out. Inquisition, um, and there's a couple IRC channels where there's discussion going on in addition to the mailing list, and it's a way to provide feedback on Inquisition and also these proposals and, and how, uh, how it works for you. So I think that's good on uh, Inquisition. Peter, you have speaker access and you are came in just in time to talk about full RBF peering node patch set. Welcome. You want to introduce yourself real quick, and then we can jump into what you're working on.
2: Sure. Um, I'll warn you. I'm not sure internet access where I am actually it works properly, but so, uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, yeah, no, I've uh, you know done a uh, bit of Bitcoin Core stuff on and off for uh, quite a few years now, and. Uh, I'm also known for the Open Timestamps project, and uh, this is nearly year ten of me uh, advocating for full RPF, So you know, maybe at some points it'll uh, become uh, true. But uh, yeah, as for the more recent thing, um, I you know, I mean, all I really did is just took someone else's um, existing uh, you know pull request that would have been for Bitcoin Core, and then just you know made a few minor minor fixes and other stuff, and uh, rebased it for the Um, bitcoin core you know v24.0.1 release and what this code does is it simply advertises a full rbf service bit and then make sure that you're connecting to at least other you know four other peers also advertising this full rbf service bit so in the absence of having a lot of people running full rbf let's just make sure that there is um, one half for these full RBF replacements to get to uh, miners.
0: I didn't know that that somebody already had a, a PR to Bitcoin Core with that. Who who opened that PR originally? It was
2: um,
1: Antoine, I think. If I yeah, it's an Antoine Riad.
2: Yeah, I believe that's correct. Okay cool. okay, cool. and yeah. and, 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 you know, and for the record, like he did all the hard work here you know, figuring out how to go and pull it onto Bitcoin core is a, a bit annoying, but uh, I just went and you know took that code and then rebased it so people can keep on running it.
0: and so the the service bit is um, a little piece of data that that peers communicate to each other about what sort of services they support. And so you've added this extra service bit to say, a, I'm a full RBF node and treat me accordingly, kind of thing. And then we could do preferential based on that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, it, 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 like the, this idea of using service services for this is something I originally came up with in maybe 2015 or 2016 or something. And uh, at the time, you know, this was just after would activated, so I reused the way that sacred nodes would preferentially peer to each other and make sure that they'd always connect to each other. These days, the term preferential appearing and how it's influenced ethics may be a little obsolete, but certainly, you know, to ensure that they're with other full RBF nodes, and you, you know why this really matters is because you know your nodes, at least on outgoing connections, connect to other nodes randomly, uh, approximately. You know they have this sort of bucketing algorithm where they take all of the IP addresses they know about, slice it up into um, sixteen, or I think on IPv6 it's like thirty-two bit or something prefixes, and then connects to random nodes by putting these prefixes at random. And obviously, if there's not very many other nodes with your transaction relay policy, the reality is, I mean, transactions aren't gonna get relayed. And in um, experiments other people have done, as well as, you know, there's some mathematics behind this, effectively need something like maybe eight to, you know, 20% of nodes running a particular policy with the randomization for transactions following the policy to widely distribute around the network you know that's kind of the threshold where um percolation as it's called happens so you know transactions can get from kind of one one node to another with high reliability
0: so how does that uh um uh, how does the patch work in terms of finding those additional four peers are you just continuing to open up more than the usual number of connections until you find those those four or yeah, so, What's I the, mean... How do you find
2: them? Well, like, Bitcoin already has a mechanism where in addition to opening eight outgoing peers, it also opens another two outgoing peers that are blocks only. And I mean, I'm not too familiar on what, what exactly the logic is behind that. My understanding is this is meant to um, do a better job of getting... Um, blocks to relay um, reliably so my my understanding is that, you' know, basically you know these kinds of mechanisms were then reused to just add an additional four peers that advertise the full RBF bit. Gotcha.
1: Maybe maybe I can jump in here a bit. So, uh, Bitcoin core nodes advertise which services they provide on the service bits. That includes, for example, hey, I have a full archive of all. Um, uh, Peter, you you have some background notes While you're not talking, could you mute? Um, so, for example, it advertises if you have a full archive of the the blocks, and you could potentially help someone to synchronize with the network. Uh, that is the. Uh, uh, no, I'm I'm missing the name of the flag. But uh, there's also one, for example, that prune nodes advertise that they don't have the full uh, set of all blocks, but they will be able to give you the last. Um, I think it's uh, 144 blocks, so the last day
2: of blocks. And 288. Oh yeah, the last two days, okay, yeah. thank you. And yeah, so, those are node network and node network limited if I remember correctly.
1: Yes, correct, thank you. Uh, and there's a few other ones like that. So uh, this is the service uh, flag that is being advertised here and it's on bit 26, I think that was previously unused. And uh, yeah, that's what I
2: wanted to add.
0: Is the service bit in this patch the same that one that's used in in Bitcoin Knots?
2: Yes, yes. It's um, I mean it matches the one I picked all the way back in like twenty fifteen. And okay. uh, the 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 one bit slightly curious thing is so Bitcoin Knots advertises a bit, but it doesn't have code to do um, peering with it.
0: Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So what? Uh, so you you will seek out the, these preferential peers, but Bitcoin Knots won't. It'll just, I guess, no to relay such transactions to those peers.
2: Well, I mean, Bitcoin Knots, like the way the logic works, is simply if full RBF is enabled, it advertises that flag, and that's it. You know, there's no more code um, related to that than that. But it does mean that with nodes running the peering patch since you have this big bunch of bitcoin knots nodes i think i think on the order of like you know 200 to 300 on the network there are a lot of peers to connect to of course this also means that it's you know i had to manually run like i think it was something like eight or you know maybe yeah, four four to eight bitcoin um full RBF peering nodes before transactions started propagating reliably because the Bitcoin Knots nodes weren't quite interconnected enough to make it work and you sort of get islanding where like every single peer would be Bitcoin Knots node.
1: Um,
2: so my understanding is that if you have in a
1: network um, a node degree of two, you will uh, generally form a Or on average, you will form a fully connected uh, graph. So if every um, full RBF node in average has two peers that also understand and propagate full RBF transactions, you will end up with a uh, subgraph that will propagate With a high likelihood, uh, nodes will be part of this this subgraph that will propagate full RBF transactions. So this is why it only takes a very small uh, proportion of all nodes to to support full RBF. And it will actually become the de facto policy on the network, especially if they're peering, because they will actively seek out those other nodes that do full RBF. It will form this subgraph where um, the transactions web property
2: i I think what you said is basically correct but if i understand what you said correctly i think you said you needed a degree of two and i think the number is actually a little higher than that Mm because i know i've never like tested this in a simulation carefully or anything like that but i think two is just enough to form chains that get disconnected whereas i think three or four is what it really takes to actually um ensure that subgraph But certainly four works, and certainly eight works well, too.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, if you have even more peers, it will uh, uh, work. But I believe uh, a mathematician with a background in graphs told me that, on average, a degree of two is sufficient to to form a connected
2: graph. Well, I haven't studied graph theory since high school, so I'll take his word for it.
0: Well, uh, yes, I guess there's some of the theory behind it, but uh, segueing into the next uh, item from the newsletter, you, Peter, you did some, some probing to actually figure out the, the the real data on the network in terms of full RBF um, replacement. What, what did you find with, with that research? Well... So
2: what I did was very simple, which is I took a
0: uh,
2: um, standard Bitcoin core node and I manually um, changed the um, outgoing, like manually added outgoing connections limits to, you know, say like 10,000 or something, um, you know, something very big, recompiled it. And then I manually added every single Bitcoin core or v24 node on ipv4 that was not advertising the full rbf bit and waited for the node to connect to as many as possible and i think it connected something like you know 700 or 600 nodes at once and i ran it with um uh, full debugging in particular debugging transaction inventory um uh announcements and then i just watched as you know full rbf replacements came in and i just counted well how many of my you know 700 or something peers or 800 whatever the number was um were advertising me those full rbf replacements and you know i have my open timestamps calendars that i run they're doing true full rbf replacements with significant time delay between transaction one and transaction two and so on so that gives me a measurement of, well how many of these Nodes in total are actually running mempool full RBF without running, say, Bitcoin not to the preferential peering patch. And long story short, when you crunch the numbers, it looks like the number was um, roughly 17 um at minimum and why i say at minimum is because i could only observe nodes that were both you know both had full rbf enabled and also were sufficiently connected to other full rbf nodes that propagation works so it's, you know essentially that the n- true number is even higher than this and of course the other caveats is i was only measuring ipv4 nodes and i could only measure ipv4 nodes that were listening so You know, potentially the numbers on other, you know, types of nodes running on different um, ways of connectivity or potentially non-listing nodes different, but I think that gives you an indication. You know, it's quite a high percentage, and now that's not a high percentage out of all nodes in total, because lots of nodes just haven't been upgraded to, you know, V24 yet, but... Certainly, of the people actively upgrading, a lot are turning on full OBS.
0: I'm, I'm looking at the, and I don't know, there's probably a more authoritative source for this, but the bitnodes.io website where they show the uh, map of different nodes. Um, I'm seeing 24.0 combined with 24.0.1 being about 19% of the network according to their analysis.
2: Yeah, I think that number is basically correct. Um you know I, I got my IP addresses off the DNS seed I run, which is a you know, byproduct of how it works, happens to have a list of um all the nodes that it knows about through the gossip network and i, I believe yeah not only knows it knows but nodes that like actually tested and at least you know once or twice has gotten um, a connection to so you know there's different ways to count this but uh i think bit nodes is roughly correct i think you know my estimate was roughly correct they kind of agreed with each other so that, that sounds about right and you know when you do like say 17 percent of you know 17 percent that's well under um, the threshold, you know, that sort of eight-ish percent threshold to um, for transactions by themselves propagate, but that number isn't really correct because after all, um, nodes have a lot, you know incoming connections too, and in practice they often have far more incoming connections than uh, outgoing, so it's you know it's a, it's a bit complex there.
0: Okay, yeah, so about about twenty percent running a twenty-four x variant, and then about seventeen percent of those. Re- appear from your research to be full doing full RVF replacements. Correct. Cool. Merch, what do you what do you think about this all?
1: Um, I think that if these numbers hold up, but I okay. I think that people that are heavily invested and interested in full RBF might be the first ones to upgrade to 24.0 in order to be able to run the flag. So I don't think that it's necessarily indicative for all the people that will be upgrading to 24.0 in the next few months. But if those numbers held up, we would be very close to having a subgraph that propagates full RBF reliably for all the listening nodes, at least, that that propagate full RBFs because, of course, the listening nodes, they tend to have not only those eight outbound connections plus two blocks only connections plus feeler connections, but they will also make connections to some about 110 other peers. And if anyone advertises these transactions to them, they will learn about it. So the listening nodes generally have a lot more connections to hear about full RBF transactions
2: on the network. So, so one thing I'll just uh, say in response to that is the thing is the way I did my measurements because I could only measure transactions that actually propagated and I wasn't you know um, probing nodes actively in fact we already have a subgraph that does full RBF um, uh, you know that propagates full RBF replacements reliably it's you know a fairly reliable subgraph and if you are connected to a lot of nodes at once you're pretty much guaranteed to um to receive these connections and you know i think the nuance here of course is not everyone's going to run the um the standard you know eight um outgoing connections i mean i personally am running a node that i just manually connected to all the v24 nodes i knew about that runs for we have to make sure propagation works and i'm sure other people are doing this too you know i like you know looking at um, my own nodes that i run it's easy to see that some IP addresses are connected to very large numbers of nodes. And while I haven't investigated exactly what transactions are propagating and so on, you know, f- making this subgraph work actively is fairly easy. The trickier thing is more getting enough IP addresses that are running full RBF that in a, list, in a non-listening node, they will have a full RBF node in their outgoing connections reliably.
1: Yeah, and you're taking all the slots from them. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm trying to point out that if every one of us that wanted to um, get this full RBF subgraph going connected to hundreds of full RBF nodes, then those non-listening nodes would have very few slots to connect to Uh
0: The, the next RBF-related item from the newsletter was, and I'm glad we had Peter Tat on today, <laughs> uh, reconsideration of uh, first-seen safe RBF. Um Daniel Lipschitz posted to the Bitcoin dev mailing list about this idea, which is essentially an idea that Peter you had from twenty fifteen it looks like. Um, do you want to give a quick overview of what the uh, first seen safe idea was and and if there's anything to add from this recent mailing list post?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know like you said, this dates back from twenty fifteen before um, optin RBF was. Uh, um, uh, you know, proposed and implemented. And basically the so-called first seed and safe rule is just saying, well, you know, if we only, um, you know, if we want to make unconfirmed transactions reliable, one way we could go do that is say that transactions can only be replaced if they continue to pay all of the outputs that they already paid. And, you know, the name first scene safe just refers to the policy of the first scene transaction. And first seen safe being, well, it's so, so-called safe because you're still paying whoever you're paying before. And you would have to uh, add more inputs to, you know, essentially to get more coins to um, go and, uh, you know, bubble things. But, I think the bigger issue is just this doesn't address the use cases for full rbf i mean the reason you know the number one reason why it got merged was because it helps with multi-party transactions and you you know that use case for multi-party transactions just does not work with first and safe so i think it's you know that's really a non-starter and unfortunately i think like by- you know when Suhas went and um, created his pull request to get full RBF removed, something he wasn't really clear about is that while transaction pinning um, doesn't make the you know, multi-party transactions case, uh, or sorry, well while, while transaction pinning. Um, degrades the use case of full rbf for multi-party transactions it's still a fact that adding full rbf makes attacks on multi-party transactions by double spends far more expensive than it would be otherwise because transaction pinning attacks are expensive in all of the ways of doing transaction pinning involves spending quite a lot more money than you would without it so you know, especially for things like CoinJoin, you know, full RBX is a no brainer. And you know, this gets back into the whole political thing of well, what use cases do we prioritize? You know. The fact is multi-party transactions and unconfirmed transaction acceptance, they conflict. And you can't really have both perfectly without making other trade-offs such as privacy. So, you know, I, I don't think uh, Daniel's uh, idea is gonna get any traction and I kinda hope it doesn't. <laughs>
1: yeah i wanted to double down on that because i agree with peter that first thing uh, safe rbf is completely unattractive so the whole point of um rbf is that you can make a efficient replacement of a previous iteration of your transaction so if you're trying to pay say Alice uh, you would create a new variant of the transaction that still pays Alice and then maybe has more fees but a smaller change output or you add a second payment to Alice and also Bob and then um, make a the smaller change output but also or make a bigger change output because you added another input but it gives you a lot of flexibility in crafting that new transaction um without necessarily always growing the transaction size with first seen safe rbf if you have say five iterations to bump the fee rate every single iteration adds another input and adds another change output right so after bumping it five times you would have a transaction that pays you six change outputs back to yourself it would completely bloat your your uh, UT Soap pool. And at that point, there is just absolutely no advantage over doing CPFP in the first place. So uh, instead of bumping the transaction by replacing it, you bump it by chaining a second transaction off of it with a child pays for uh, child, child pays for parent transaction. And you, you get the same effect that you create a change output back to yourself, but at least you've already spent the previous change output, so it doesn't your wallet completely, uh, and it keeps the transaction ID of the previous transaction the same. So I, I just don't see if we got RBF uh, first scene safe, what is the frigging point of it in the first place?
2: So, so I'll make one minor correction. is that in um, some ideas of what first scene safe could be, you would go and simply make the change output um, bigger. Which, depending on how you implement it, would be okay. Of course, you know I've also heard people go argue that you can't even do that. You do have to do the really inefficient way, like you described. But you know, I in general though I agree it's it's just very inefficient. It doesn't work with RBF use cases, and for the multi-party transaction use case, which I think definitely the most important one. You know, why you want this is to completely replace one unwanted transaction with a different transaction that's completely different. You know, and a good example being um for say CoinJoin, where in the case of something like Wasabi CoinJoin, you might have a CoinJoin with a couple hundred participants. And currently if one of them double spends their input at the right time, and that double spend gets to a lot of miners, you'll have one transaction with one input, you know, potentially one output, holding up a transaction with five hundred inputs, five hundred outputs. And first scene safe just cannot address that use case at all. And you know, if we don't have this, we do get this ugly griefing attack. So
0: the last yeah one from oh sorry, go ahead, Merch. No, go up, up. no, no, no. I was just gonna transition to AJ's uh, reply. Um, He actually applied to an earlier thread about the zero-conf apps in immediate danger, Um, and it's a a bit more uh, philosophical about the motivation for different groups to, to be doing full RBF. I think it would be hard for us to maybe summarize that entire philosophical post here Um, But, Murch, were there there any takeaways from that that you thought were notable for this discussion?
1: I I think that one of the arguments that's a little underappreciated sometimes in this discussion is if full RBF is economically rational for everyone, why has it been such a stable equilibrium for seven years? And I think there's a, a bit of a point to... Well, miners have this huge hardware investment, and they are trying to keep the overall Bitcoin users' happiness high, especially the people that send a lot of transactions. So maybe in the long term, it is actually not interesting to make it easier to double spend. But um, I I find that... Well, I, I, I don't want to reiterate the whole debate here. I, I find that all sides have interesting points in this. And perhaps one underappreciated thing is that the Bitcoin protocol developers that are pushing for uh, full RBS, they have thought a lot about the theoretic um, uh, construct and the network propagation rules and the mining incentives. But the people that actually currently use zeroconf, they have a lot of ac- economic activity on the network, and they have skin in the game. So it's it's just these extremely different perspectives on it that um, make it sometimes feel like people are just talking about completely different topics.
2: So I, I think um, with regards to economic incentives for miners, I think you can summarize what's happened in a you know very simple way, which say that the amount of money you earn by full RBF hasn't been enough to outweigh the angry emails you get. And honestly, I think that really is exactly what it is. As long as it's disabled by default and the amount of money involved is very small, miners just aren't going to bother because when you turn it on, you get a whole bunch of angry emails that are annoying to deal with. And I I can tell you that of the few miners that have turned it on, you know, they have told me that that they've had angry emails over this and it's annoying. Now, conversely, I've also been told by some of the people, you know, who've turned this on and I'll, I'll reiterate, you know, these are this very small mining operations, you know, at least one of them, they kind of told me, well, their main motivation for doing it, was they shared well you know screw john carvalho i mean this is obviously a good idea and i'm quite happy to see him sad about it like that you know that's the kind that's the kind of motivation that is a play with this amount with this small amount of money and you know part of why i did my full rbf bounty was to just provide a bit of psychological incentive to you know maybe break that deadlock and you know get the right detention necessary to get some miners to you know to go to the effort of turning the slag on. Because after all, you know, blocks these days in terms of fees, they tend to earn on the order of, you know, one thousand to two thousand dollars worth of fees per block. You need a lot of money to make it worthwhile to go do things when fees alone are that high, and also the block subsidy is like another, you know, hundred grand. You know, it's just if full RBF transactions are, you know, another $100 block on top of that, and they're not even that. It's, you know, it's the economic incentives just aren't there to actually do anything, even though in theory, yes, they are.
0: Merch, anything else on the news section, RBF or otherwise? Yeah, I just wanted to, to
1: briefly agree with Peter that, uh, Currently, of course, the dynamic is that the subsidy is about two magnitudes bigger than the transaction fees in total. So it'll take some time for full RBF to, to have a lot of impact on the overall revenue of miners. Um, I think other than that, we can wrap up the, the news section. We've spent quite a bit of time on this this time, so maybe we'll, we'll move a little quicker on the rest.
0: Peter, thanks for joining us. You're, you're welcome to hang out as we talk about releases and, and PR um, merges, but um, you're also welcome to jump off if you want to go back to sleep. Thank you. I might just do that. Talk <laughs> later. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. All right. Releases and release candidates back to the, the newsletter 232. Uh, we have Eclair 0.8.0, which is a major release of that Lightning implementation. Which adds support for zero conf channels and short channel identifiers. Um, and then we also point to the release notes, which includes um, a bit more detail um, and also adds notes in the release notes that there's experimental support for dual funding, which is pretty cool. Merch, any thoughts on this Eclair release? I have not
1: looked at it much, nope.
0: Okay. Yeah, I thought that the experimental dual funding was was cool. I I happened to see that before um, this Twitter spaces. Otherwise, I may have suggested that we note that in the newsletter. Um,
1: I mean, dual funding is going to be... Uh, has potential to be a big UX improvement for new channels coming online. The biggest issue with new channels coming online now, of course, is that all of the balance sits on one side. So movement is restricted in only one direction. And if we get dual funding to to be broadly um, adopted across the network where both parties add some funds to the channel, I think that um, the initial channel uh, creation will will have a bit of a better UX, because you can immediately send and receive. So I'm, I'm generally happy to see more uh, implementations working on that.
0: Next release here is from LDK, 0.0.113. And there is a, a huge list of um, API updates in these release notes. I think we, we covered a chunk of these um, over the last, month or so um in the newsletter and our discussions here merch i don't know if there's anything that stood out to you in that list of api updates that you wanted to call out
1: i'm sorry i have not looked at it <laughs> but i should mention that uh, this week we're starting a ldk topic week on bitcoin stack exchange so if you happen to be one of the people that are playing around with ldk and or using it to implement support for your existing wallet for the lightning network please do ask your questions on stack exchange with the tidy ldk
0: Next release here um, was one from the newsletter, which is 0.26.0 RC2. But I see that as of yesterday, um, there is a 0.26.0 release out. And uh, the summary of this release is improving Fulcrum Electrum server compatibility and fixing public descriptor template key origin paths. Um, I've never played with Fulcrum. I guess it's a fork of Electrum. Are you familiar with it, merch?
1: I am not. I'm sorry.
0: OK. So I guess if you're using BDK and, and using this uh, Electrum server fork, there's some enhancements there. Um, and then there's also release notes that aren't in the tag that we link to. But if you go on GitHub to releases, you'll see the release 0.26.0. And that provides a bunch more list of uh, fixes, changes, and and summary of the release. So check that out.
1: I think it's also interesting they bumped the uh, hardware wallet integration dependencies, so um, HWI from the Bitcoin Core repositories. So I think uh, they're working on having better hardware wallet support. So and this is a trend that I'm generally excited about is how many of the implementations are using these libraries that are coming out to, to have a hardware wallet support. Similarly to our first news item about uh, uh key of the maintainer for Bitcoin nodes being compromised. Having your hardware wallet manage your keys this, this intermediates it from a hot system. Uh, there there are open questions on how secure that is or how that changes your um well your your thread models and, and how how to manage your keys. Uh, what backups you need and things like that. But uh, generally, this interoperability of hardware wallets with different wallet software is, is a re- very cool trend this year. Well, last year. I still have to adjust to 2023.
0: <laughs> you got another week of that, okay. then no more condolences for that. Uh, moving on to the notable code and documentation changes for this week's newsletter. Bitcoin Core 26, 265. Um, This is um, relaxing the non-witness serialized size of transactions from 82 to 65. We had Instagibbs chatting with us on a previous Optech recap about this and the motivation for it and the mailing list post around it. Um, That PR at that time we discussed was already, or this PR was already open at that time. And got buy in, uh, resulted in the mailing list post, our discussion with him, and now this is uh, officially merged. Merch? What are your thoughts yeah, on uh, this policy?
1: I, I noticed that the one that merged that was restricted it uh, or that allows everything greater than 64. There was also discussion about allowing everything but 64. And then I, I briefly talked to to one of the reviewers earlier today, and um, I think that, that my takeaway is that in the long term, we can still consider allowing all transaction sizes except for 64 bytes. But maybe it's a good first step to, to allow 65 plus at first and and think a little more about what it means to allow transaction sizes smaller than 64 bytes um anyway there there was these competing two variants i think we've also covered this a lot in the past few weeks so uh, let's let's move on
0: okay we won't call on Instagips to come up and give a a sermon on that again uh bitcoin core 21576 allowing wallets using an external signer like HWI, to fee bump using RBF in the GUI, um, and also using the bump fee RPC. It looks like potentially this was either an error or just not possible previously to do fee bump if you needed to sign externally. So this PR changes that and allows you to externally sign fee bumping transactions.
1: Yeah, I think one of the problems was that um, how Bitcoin Core Wallet Uh, tracks uh, UTXOs that are not, that it doesn't have the keys for itself, Uh, like the, it's a bit of a discovery problem to know that it can sign and and how watch-only wallets get implemented. So I think it was just a lacking feature, not a bug.
0: Next PR is Bitcoin Core 24.865, which allows a wallet backup to be restored on a pruned node, as long as that pruned node has all of the blocks produced after the wallet was created, and the the wallet um, has a timestamp, which it, it then this this change then coordinates that timestamp with the most uh, recent block that the pruned node has and and makes sure that it has all those blocks. And I guess he, previously, there was just an error if you tried to restore a wallet on a pruned node, whereas, uh, with this change, you're able to restore as long as you have the blocks um, since that timestamp. Merci so, probably uh, has familiarity with um, yeah. this, so
1: <laughs> I, I have not looked at this uh, too deeply, but um, a Bitcoin wallet generally remembers when it was created, and that is helpful, especially for making sure that it found all the funds that it can spend. Uh, you. If you know at what timestamp a wallet was created, you generally do not have to look whether you got paid before that, right? So um, it it is an efficiency improvement for what section of the blockchain to search for, for having gotten paid. And um, I believe that previously importing a new wallet to Bitcoin Core would always uh, prompt a rescan on a prune node. So you would, um, because you don't have all the old nodes, would um, generally just search the blockchain from scratch and uh, download everything again. So, or or maybe you're right and it, it was only an error, but um, downloading the whole blockchain again is, of course, a lot of uh, bandwidth and computation. So, being able to just uh, search from the blocks that you still have is a, a big improvement. I believe that there is also a um, related pull request that allows Bitcoin Core to make use of the um, uh, what is it? The, the compact block filters, uh, which give you an basically a content directory of what is included in a block, or rather a, a way to look up whether certain keys are um, touched in a block. And that way you can just get those block filters from other full nodes and see what nodes, uh, sorry, what, what blocks you have to acquire to see if there is relevant transactions in them instead of doing a full resync of the blockchain.
0: Yeah, I think I saw in the code that there actually was a statement that if it's a pruned node and you can't do uh, a wallet restore, but I may have missed that uh, or interpreted that incorrectly. Um, no, if you actually looked at it, you're probably right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> careful, careful. Um, next PR is Bitcoin Core 23 319, uh, which updates get raw transaction rpc to provide additional information if you set the verbose parameter and quick question for you Merch: if you if you took a look at this um is it the verbose parameter or is it the verbosity parameter because i think this pr introduced the verbosity parameter um but i guess either way you're probably scrambling to look in there now uh it provides additional information Um, about the transaction, including the fee, as well as information about the outputs from the previous, uh, the prevouts essentially. Um, So if you need a little bit more information, this PR adds the parameter for you to uh, get that additional information via the raw transaction RPC.
1: Oh, that's that's a good catch. There's actually now a verbosity and a verbose uh, parameter, apparently. So uh, that I'm I'm surprised that it got merged, but um,
0: <laughs> and, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Well, if only we had more people like reviewing this, then then maybe would have caught it. Um, you have these Monday morning quarterbacks looking at it <laughs> for their Twitter space and and see something, of course. Um, any other comments on the verbosity edition here? Just a little bit more data in the RPC. Yeah,
1: seems seems pretty straightforward.
0: Uh, Bitcoin Core 26.628 begins rejecting uh, RPC requests that have the same parameter multiple times. So in the past, we gave an example in the newsletter, if you had um, RPC parameter foo equals bar and then another parameter foo equals baz, that was treated as foo equals baz. As opposed to foo equals bar, which may not be what the person who's calling that RPC intended. So now the the request will fail if you provide that same parameter multiple times. Um, Merch, do you have like some insight into the background of why this was ever the case? Is that is that common in CLIs to to take the most recent parameter as opposed to erring?
1: Yeah, I guess um, there's as long as you specify um it's it's just an assignment, right you're saying, for the variable x, I want to uh, provide this value. And there is not strictly a problem there. It's just rather that it has a smell. If somebody specified the same variable multiple times, they likely overlooked that they had specified it already. And especially right. if you insert it at the top of a long list of things, you might have not seen that below there was another. And then the old wall value would still get used accidentally. So, arrowing out here is a service for the user in the sense that it um, basically says, hey, I think you probably made a mistake here. You probably did not want to specify this twice. Uh, And so. Yeah, basically the the naive way is to to just be like, well, he's just telling me that variable and I guess he does it twice and the last one is the relevant one. Uh, This is a more explicit, probably should take another look here. Thanks
0: for that background, merch. Next PR here is an Eclair PR 2464, adding the ability to trigger an event when a remote peer becomes ready to process payments. And we note here in the newsletter that that's especially useful in the context of async payments. And um, side note, we added async async payments to uh, our topics for this week as well. So feel free to went to peruse the uh, topics index and there's some reference references to async payments th- from our previous newsletter as well as a few paragraphs on async payments um maybe merch do you want to give a tldr on what async payments are
1: yeah, so the context here is that especially mobile clients on the Lightning Network uh, might be offline for a brief period of time. And of course, in the Lightning Network, in order to uh, process a payment, you have to be online and receive it. So. Um, some Lightning Service Providers, especially assigned uh, who are the maintainers of Eclair, uh, they were pushing for a way for the Lightning Service Provider to hold on to a um, multi-hop payment being built up for the period of time that a mobile client might be offline and not responding, right? So, essentially, they're, they're holding an HTLC and trying over a period of time to make the mobile client aware of somebody trying to pay them and uh, don't immediately fail when when the client isn't online at the, the first instance that they hear about the request. Uh, so whatever, you go through a tunnel, and your mobile phone comes back online. And then uh, I think now here is, oh, the mobile client is online again, and it will be able to to try to relay that HTLC and build up the, the final hop of the payment. And the mobile client can actually pull in the Lightning payment and, and cascade, start the cascading uh, resolution of the multi-hop payment.
0: Next PR is also an Eclair PR, 2482, um, which enables sending payments using blinded routes. I feel like we've defined blinded routes on our Twitter space recaps for the last four or five weeks. Um, Merch, in the interest of time, do you want to talk about blinded routes or not?
1: Uh, well, I was going to give a thumb up for second, yeah. but
0: <laughs> it. Okay, we can skip it. Yeah, I I figured we can. There's also a good uh, a summary in the newsletter for this PR, actually um, a good general summary. So take a look at that. Um, I think we can skip in the interest of time, and we still have five more PRs to review. Um, there's LND2208 um, begins preferring different payment method different payment paths depending on maximum capacity of a channel relative to the amount being spent so i guess instead of just jamming it all in one channel uh lnd will take into account the capacity of that channel and potentially route portions of that payment through different paths accordingly um rich is there a name for this sort of um technique of changing routes based on capacity uh, I
1: think what this is referring to is um, L and D used to optimize the routes for the least fees, and um, that might get you into trouble if you're trying to route through a channel where you would basically take almost all of the capacity of the channel, which means that very likely you're not going to be able to even get through that route, because when is ever the whole capacity on one side? Or, uh, to be fair, I think um, the default is that you can only route HTLCs up to a quarter of the capacity in the first place, but um, for the sake of the argument, if you're trying to, to route almost all of what you can send for a channel, the likelihood is a lot higher that there is not enough uh, balance available to to push through, right? So what this does is instead of always just looking at the fees and trying to minimize the fees, it looks at is this channel significantly has has this channel a significantly higher capacity than the amount of money that I'm trying to send through? Then it's probably more likely to have enough balance on the side that I need it on to make my payment, and. Um, that will maybe increase the fees very slightly, but it will probably reduce the number of t- attempts that LND needs to make in order to find a good payment route. Uh, so it it should make uh, payments go through faster and more reliable. Uh, I think that this is closely related to the pickup payments, which uh, is this. Uh, paper that came out, I think, last year, uh, maybe two years ago now, uh, that was looking at pathfinding as a flow problem and was assigning probabilities of how likely channels are to be able to forward payments and um, uh, sought routes more in the regard uh, to whether payments would go through on the route that it um, picked, rather than just looking at the fees. So um, I, I think it's it's a general trend of uh, part of the general trend of improving uh, lightning routing for or pathfinding, I should say, for reliability rather than just optimizing for minimal fees.
0: Thanks, March. That was great. Uh, there's two PRs. That we noted here for ldk that are associated ldk 1738 and ldk 1908 which are both pr's related to handling offers which is um bolt 12 from the the lightning spec and if you actually drill into 1738 it references an ongoing bolt 12 work uh kind of parent pr if you will and it looks like ldk has completed um, almost all of that checklist. It looks like there's some Bolt 12 test vectors and some some um, documentation that they need to do to officially consider their Bolt 12 offer encoding parent PR completed. Merch, do you want to hash out offers or shall we move on? Didn't we do that
1: like five times in the past two months? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perhaps. Um, Okay, we'll move on then. Uh, Rust Bitcoin 1467 adds methods for calculating the size and weight units of a transaction's inputs and outputs. Surprising to me that that didn't already exist, but there's now a function for calculating both of those. We can move on to Rust Bitcoin 1330, which Seems like Rust Bitcoin's always messing around with, with lock times. Um, it removes the, the packed lock time type and requires um, the use of this absolute lock time type, which I guess were nearly identical with the exception of this ORD characteristic, which I believe is used in some sort of sorting within Rust. Merch, I don't know if you got a chance to dig, dig into
1: 1330 lock time. I, I looked at it, and I think that what Rust Bitcoin here is doing is it had some somewhat um, opinionated ways of using lock times earlier, and it's sort of just going back a little more to the standard behavior of how other packages and wallets are interacting with lock time. Um, I think we've had a couple of other PRs that we looked at where they were also um, adjusting how lock times were being used in Bitcoin. In I, I think it's mostly that and perhaps uh, related to downstream changes in LDK and BDK, where people are just um, uh, Using that and actually, due to especially Lightning using a lot of lock time stuff, uh, finding that the implementation doesn't work uh, for them that well, and it's it's just cleaning up and standardizing. I think I have not looked too much into it, so my suspicion might be off the target here, though.
0: That certainly makes sense given the the context, because it does seem like we've seen a lot of these PRs to us Bitcoin in the last month or two,
2: um,
0: so. You may be right. Last PR for this week is BTC Pay Server 4411. Uh, it upgrades to Core Lightning 22.11, um, which we've covered previously. Uh, and one of the changes here is also the uh, how you could put the hash of an order description inside a Bolt 11 invoice. Um, it just changes the APIs that you use to be able to do that. Um, I don't have too much hands-on btc pay server experience, but it seems like you could either put a description in the description field, or you could put a hash of the description, supposedly. I I, I suppose that if if it was a very long description, you could put a hash of the description in the invoice and then communicate uh, the details of that uh, invoice out of band, or perhaps there's a privacy reason to do that. I'm not sure. I imagine, as a merchant, you
1: would probably not want to give your internal. It's it's sort of my field in accounting terms, like order by user, blah blah blah, for uh, date, whatever. Right. So I think it's more of a. Um, if I put it in the invoice, I can look it up in my database again. And if the user pays the invoice, they're going to, in the HTLC, uh, remind us what what they were paying by us being able to look it up in the database. Um, also, not an active user of Pay server, though. Well,
0: that's it for this week. Merch, anything to remind our listeners of events, announcements, otherwise? Um, ldk week on on stacking exchange
1: you know what we forgot we forgot pe- to tell people a few minutes ago that if they had questions or comments that they should uh, line up for speaker access so maybe we should do that here still um, then happy new year and i yeah if you're playing around with ldk uh, we're starting a topic week i said that already but I I would really love for people to ask their questions about LDK. Even if they had that question months ago, they could still ask it. We have a commitment by at least one LDK developer to look every day and answer all the questions about LDK, maybe also cajole his colleagues into helping with that. So yeah, maybe if you were looking to play around with LDK, there's a good time to start.
0: Great. Uh, I don't see any hands up or requests for speaker access. So thank you all for joining. And we will do this again a week from today. And have a good week. Thanks for joining us. See ya. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. Bye.